It's a beautiful spring evening or almost spring evening here on Guimas Island. A nice evening to talk about fear, right? Everybody's favorite topic? No? No? Well, I'm still going to talk about fear because I think it can really help us, even if it's not the thing we woke up this morning wanting to face. I'm not the, I want to talk about the kind of fear that we get when we go to a haunted house or that when we watch a slasher movie or something like that. That's not the kind of fear I want to talk about. I want to talk about the kind of fear that is inescapable for us as human beings to have. We don't have to go to a haunted house, but there's a kind of fear that is just a part of our wiring. It's much more subtle, much less obvious and easier to deny than that kind of over-the-top fear we create for ourselves, uh, sort of for fun. Um, and it's a kind of fear that we're more likely to inward re inwardly repress than outwardly express. You know, we're not going to scream out loud with this kind of fear like we might at the haunted house. But it's easy for us to pretend it's not there and push it down. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, had this you know, famous phrase that he gave in a speech at the beginning of the Second World War, where he said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And this statement expresses a kind of a cultural norm for our Western culture. And that norm is something like strong people don't fear. It's only weak people that have fear. So, you know, like, for instance, John Wayne, he's never afraid in the movie, right? Because he's a strong person. He's got that idea. Uh, and we, we have all these great superheroes that are in the comic books and things that have no fear that go straight forward. We, we don't have anybody like fight or flight man or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's just not in our culture to respect fear. And I, I'm a creature of that culture. I remember early in my practice uh, at Mindfulness Community of Puget Sound, one evening we were doing an exercise about fear. And I said out loud, I don't know what we're doing because I don't feel fear. I could only conceive of fear in that haunted house variety. And I don't have that, I guess, but I didn't know. I have a lot of fear in me that I had no access to at all. So I'm not sure that we actually need to fear fear itself, like Roosevelt said. Maybe there's another way. And that's what I want to talk about is that other way where we don't actually fear fear, but we turn toward fear. Fear is nothing more than a kind of energy an energy that arises in us. And like any energy, the energy of fear can be used for many purposes. Some are helpful and some are not so helpful. And I'd like to propose that rather than fearing our fear, we can actually look deeply into our fear and utilize that energy for liberation. So I wanna draw a distinction here between helpful fear and unhelpful fear. 
I'll start with I'll start with helpful fear. This zendo we have here on Guimas Island is on this little farm. And when I open the door at the end of our morning sittings, sometimes there are deer outside. We have a herd of semi-tamed deer that enjoy our flower beds. And when I open the door, it makes a squeak and the deer instantly go boing and they bounce away. It's just a reaction like that. So the deer are endowed with a helpful fear that protects their lives. They hear the sound, they react instantly. And then they stop and they look back and say, oh, it's only, it's only the guy who feeds us. It's only, the, it's only the gardener, the produce man. So they stop, they stop running away. But that initial reaction is a kind of helpful fear that they have. And my dog, Penny, will oftentimes see something outside the window or hear something and start to bark. Now, whether that thing is there or not, oftentimes I look out, I don't see anything, but she's seen something and she starts to growl or to bark. And she's, I think, doing the same thing. She is seeing something that might be threatening and she's instantly reacting to it. And I imagine that for dogs, this has kept dogs alive, right? Something frightening is there and they bark to challenge it and, and make it go away. So it seems that living creatures have this kind of protective energy about us. And that protective energy might arise, we might call it this helpful fear. So I, I saw recently a, um, a science show on PBS where they were talking about single-celled creatures like bacteria. And even single-celled creatures, which we don't think of as having a mind, if you introduce a threatening chemical into their environment, they will pull back and react. Not unlike the deer when I open the Zendo door. So even the simplest life forms want to live, want to preserve themselves and protect themselves. So if you can imagine, this show said, that when you start to put multi-celled creatures together, these cells cooperate and share this information and they begin to react in total when something comes in. And if you make a large enough assembly of cells, those reactions become a mind and there's become, there becomes a consciousness. And so the whole organism, like the deer, react and Deer and people and dogs may be able to have a sense that there is fear there. They may have a, an emotion or some way of labeling this. I know humans do, maybe the animals don't. So our bodies are just like those bacteria and just like those deer. We have these automatic reactions and we can test it out for ourselves. Uh, if we're cooking at the stove, and we reach too close to the pot of boiling water and our hand gets in the steam, it automatically comes back without us thinking at all, just like the deer. So we have this protective mechanism in us and, and I'm calling that our helpful fear. 
And we can imagine that that on the savanna, uh, if you know, if we were the ones out there seeing the, the critter that was the threat first, that kicks in and we and we survive. So this has led to passing down by generation after generation after generation a negativity bias. We're looking for what we're afraid of. We're looking for things that are wrong. And studies are showing that there's a, we have about five times as many negative perceptions as positive perceptions because of this, this uh, negativity bias. So we couldn't even get rid of this if we wanted to. But this is just the way it is. This is just what we are as a biological creature. We're wired to protect ourselves, and our minds label this as fear. It just is. And, and in order to see that, that fear arises in us, we have practices. So for instance, we have the fifth mindfulness training, which is the training of watering good seeds. When we are faced with fear, we recognize we have a negativity bias. So in order to see the world clearly and truly, we have to water good seeds to balance out the negativity bias. We have lots of practices that are designed to help us see this kind of fear. So that's what I call helpful fear. It actually helps us to survive. It's, it's in the moment. It responds to what we are experiencing in the moment and it acts in the moment. So let's now contrast that with unhelpful fear. An unhelpful fear is the result that is because inevitably some of that helpful fear hardens. It hardens into a way of seeing and something we call a mental formation in Buddhist psychology. So how does that happen? Well, difficult events happen in our lives. We're mistreated. Sometimes we're even abused. And although it's got a variety of expressions throughout our experiences, none of us escapes this kind of suffering. None of us escapes the suffering of life's difficulties, the things that we are afraid of, that threaten us and challenge us. And especially when this kind of suffering happens in our young lives, when we're still soft and forming, it's easy for that helpful fear of in-the-moment self-protection to linger and harden and grow into the unhelpful fear of a mental formation. And this happens to all of us because none of us have two Buddhas for parents. So we're going to, we're going to, kind of get stepped on sometimes. It, no matter how good intended our parents are, every once in a while, something like this is going to happen to us. You know, if you even think about the myth of the Buddha, in the myth of the Buddha, in his life, his parents tried to protect him from all suffering. And he still had to go out and actively face suffering in the world in order to transform and find liberation. So even in this, in this, story of this of the buddha's life still suffering had to come in 
It's just inevitable. So as children, we respond as best we can to these fearful experiences. And we create childlike solutions for them. And that's perfectly appropriate to create these childlike responses to keep ourselves safe from our suffering. The trouble is we then continue to use that same strategy throughout our life. And it hardens into a mental formation. And it turns out that our three-year-old self or our five-year-old self is the one that is running us so often because that's the part, that's the self that made these mental formations. So unhelpful fear happens in our lives as adults when we substitute our mental formations for reality. So I'll say that again. Unhelpful fear happens when we substitute our mental formations for reality when we don't see the world as it is, we see the world through the lens of our mental formations that grew up around fear. So let's go back to the child example for a second. Suppose you were treated poorly by a parent. You had, as a child, some sort of helpful response that tried to protect you. And then that helpful response didn't have a chance to be examined or understood or let go of. So it hardened into a mental formation. And now all these years later, when you're faced, let's say with a difficult authority figure, because that's what this mental formation arose in response to, you're a difficult parent, your mental formation now arises and clouds your vision you don't see the truth of the moment. You see through the mental formation that was started in your childhood. And you, you can um, actually replay the physical fear response of your childhood when it's not necessary, when it's not actually helping you. You're just like the deer outside the Zendo door. When something happens that brings that mental formation up, you just leap. No thought, no space, no choice. You're not seeing the world as it is. You're seeing the world through the cloud of your mental formation. And all this happens under the surface. We are not consciously aware that this is happening. This is just an automatic reaction. Something happens, your mental formation is triggered, and you react instantly. No thought, no possibility of freedom. And if you do actually reflect on the situation, likely the reflection is just to create a story that justifies your reaction. You know, anyone, anyone recognize that? Like late night rumination, you know, where you lay there and you think, oh, I should have said this. Oh, actually, maybe I did say that. 
yeah, yeah, I should have, I did tell him off. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. He was wrong. You know, and we, and we can just spin that and spin that and spin that and spin that and make it stronger and stronger. And then that mental formation is just that much more alive and ready to be pulled out the next time. So let's talk about practicing with this. If we, if we know this is going on, it's going on under the surface, outside of conscious awareness. How do we bring this into our practice so that we can begin to shift things bit by bit over time? Well, by being here and practicing, you're already doing this. You're already creating the possibility that things can shift. As our sitting meditation and our mindfulness practice develops, our fear will come to visit us. We don't have to go looking for it. It will find us. And it will find us because we are more able to see it in action or to reflect on it afterwards than if we don't have a practice. So our helpful fear will, will surface. Um, and, you know, that may serve us in all kinds of ways, but, you know, maybe you're walking in a, sort of a sketchy part of town at night and you could take a shortcut through that dark alley, but the goosebumps come up, you know, and it goes, mm-mm, no, take the long way with the street lights, you know, and th there's the helpful fear right there. Or another, here's another manifestation of that. It might be something like, um, you're in a difficult relationship uh, or, a, or a, a dangerous situation. And as your uh, sitting and mindfulness practice develop, you might begin to notice that your body is becoming activated every time you're in those situations. And it may become so activated that you decide, I can't go in there. I can't, I can't enter that room with that person. I can't have that conversation because it's dangerous. And this has definitely happened to me. This is, this is uh, often, uh, I can think of two significant times in my life when my body told me, don't do that anymore. And my mind wasn't ready to see that. So that's, that's an example of helpful fear arising. Let's talk about unhelpful fear also arising, because that's going to come up too. So one of the ways we know that unhelpful fear is arising is because rather than rising, arising spontaneously and in the moment like the helpful fear does, like the goosebumps as you contemplate going down the dark alley, unhelpful fear tends to arise about the past and the future. It's anticipatory oftentimes. So that's one of the ways that I, I tend to um, distinguish them. So practicing with our, um, with our helpful fear means respecting that, oh, excuse me, practicing with our unhelpful fear means noticing and transforming those burdensome mental formations when they come up. And one of the clues is that they are coming up about the future or about the past. <clears throat> 
rather than about the present moment. So we create space by sitting regularly, by practicing mindful awareness. And in doing that, we slow the momentum of those automatic reactions so we're not imprisoned by them. That's what we're doing here on the cushion tonight, for instance. We're slowing down our momentum so that we're not just automatically reacting to those mental formations, one of which could be our unhelpful fear. So when we do that, we create a space in us and a space for clarity to arise. And in that space, we begin to see the world actually as it is and see ourselves as we are, instead of chronically reacting through those fearful mental formations. We begin to see that, oh, that's the way it looks, but if in this space, it only looks that way because I'm looking through the distortion of a mental formation. Without the space, it's just looking through the mental formation, and we think that's true. But in our sitting meditation, we have the space to see things as they actually are and notice that we're distorting our perception. So a, big, a bit of distance begins to develop in our, in our sitting meditation between perception of things and the reaction to them. And in that space, the possibility of transformation exists. It's quite lovely. In that space, we have the possibility of seeing our mental formations for what they are. Seeing our chronic, unhelpful, fearful reactions. Seeing our chronic distortion of reality. So in my case, what I've worked with is I had difficult experiences as a child with authority figures. And so for years, I've had uh, mental formations towards authority figures that are not true. I feel threatened by authority figures. I question their judgment. I question their ability to um, give me feedback. All these are the distortions of my mental formation my unhelpful fear of authority figures that hardened when I was a child. So into the space of meditation, I sit with that. I sit with that. And I notice that, oh, yesterday, I resisted this authority figure in my life. But on the cushion, I can see that that person was well-meaning, was actually being helpful to me. And I began to see the distance between my habitual, fearful reaction toward an authority figure and the reality of that person's behavior. I noticed I was not seeing the world as it is. I was seeing my mental formation. 
So that's why we keep coming back to this space. It gives us that possibility. It gives us the possibility of seeing our mental formations and of transforming our mental formations and becoming free of them. So this can be applied to fear, but it can be applied to all sorts of other mental formations. So once we, once we become comfortable with this process and we give ourselves over to the unfolding of our practice, our fear will be transformed, but also other mental formations will be transformed. And again, we don't have to go looking for them. They find us. This isn't easy. And this isn't quick. And it's not the kind of thing that you, it's one and done. This is practice. So in order to take on something that's not quick and not easy, we have to proceed with a lot of kindness and patience. Kindness for ourselves, for having been trapped by these mental formations of fear for so long. There's no need to blame ourselves. We're just like everybody else. None of us escapes this. So we can turn toward our fear and embrace it with understanding and love and kindness. As Ty says, we can pick it up and hold it like a little baby and cradle our fear. Hello, my dear little fear. I know that you're here. And when it's all riled up and we don't think we can sit with it, we just hold it until it calms down and then we put it back down. So it's not easy, and because it's not easy, then we need help. We need help from two main sources. The first thing we need is a Sangha. We really need Sangha eyes to help us see these mental formations, see how they are owning us, trapping us, running us. You know, the friends on the path have helped me so much. They hold up mirrors so I can see when I'm trapped and stuck in my fearful mental formation. And the Sangha is such a great place to do that because we're all working on this together, none of us in judgment of the others. And we can say with love and kindness, oh, can you see this? Mike just did this for me this last week able to reflect to me something where I was stuck. That's a great gift. The other help that I think is really important to have is a teacher. A teacher can show us the practices that can liberate us bit by bit at each stage of our practice. And a, a teacher can do that not because the teacher is completely free themselves, but they're just a little further down the road and they can point out the pitfalls that they know from their own experience in their own lives. And a teacher can hold the vision of our wholeness, even when we're caught in our fear. A teacher can see our goodness when our fear tells us we have none. Can see our wisdom when our fear tells us we have none. 
teacher can see our unique beauty when we can't see it because we're so clouded with fear. So this isn't easy, but we can do it. We can do it. We can learn to distinguish helpful fear from unhelpful fear. And we can transform the fearful mental formations that bind us. So unlike what FDR said, we don't need to fear our fear. We just need to turn toward it and it will teach us. <laughs>